Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Over the past decade, the nuclear power industry in the United States has fallen on hard times. A perfect storm of falling electricity prices and of rising nuclear operating and maintenance costs has eroded profits at nuclear plants that compete in wholesale electricity markets. Five U.S. nuclear plants have closed prematurely in recent years, with at least six more set to close by 2020. These generators are often the economic lifeblood of their communities. When the plants close, many good-paying jobs and generous funding for schools and community services disappear. And unlike most one-company towns, nuclear host communities find themselves burdened with the legacy of nuclear waste that can create a barrier to redevelopment. Today's podcast looks at the fate of communities surrounding Entergy Corporation's Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant, which closed in 2014. The shuttered plant is located in Vernon, Vermont, a rural town of 2000 at the southern tip of New England's Green Mountains. Here to discuss the impact of the closure is Jennifer Stromston, program director with the Institute of Nuclear Host Communities. Jennifer also works for the economic development agency that serves the region surrounding Vermont Yankee. Also here is Saki Brahim a reporter with e News who has written at length about Vermont Yankee and the legacy of nuclear plant closures. Jennifer and Saqib, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Now, Saqib, I thought I'd start out with you with the first question. You've written about, uh, about nuclear closures and nuclear host communities for e News. You've written extensively on the topic. I wonder if you can start us out by framing the role of these plants in the communities where they're located. So, Andy, what got my interest in this uh, started was this idea that you have kind of a unique economic actor uh, that is at risk. Um, What I mean by that is it it, it kind of started with this meeting in uh, in a nearby community in Westchester County in New York, uh, pretty close to where I live. And uh, I was struck at how many workers came out to say that their businesses would be affected by potential uh, closure of the nuclear plant there, which is called India Point. Uh, you had folks that were mechanics, you had folks that were carpenters, had folks that uh, were contractors to the plant. And it got me thinking in a way that I'd never thought about before, about how many kind of economic roots a, a large nuclear plant can wend its way into in a larger community. And with the nuclear closure, you take that away. And so what happens to all those roots? That's what I was kind of thinking about. So what you have with a nuclear plant is, a uniquely large uh, amount of money that's getting pumped into a local economy because so many, because there are not that many employees, right, a couple hundred, but they're making six-figure salaries by and large. So it's kind of an outsized amount of GDP that, that's attributable to this one source. But because of all the money that it pumps into the local economy, a lot of other people depend on it. So that was kind of why I began to look at this as an employment and economic issue, um, in addition to the energy issue that we always study at any. So these are very much outsized economic impacts. You referenced the uh, six-figure salaries that in many places that are rural wouldn't normally be there, I'd imagine. That's right. Um, so in the case of Vermont Yankee, as an example, um, those uh, six-figure salaries of Vermont Yankee were uh, the highest in uh, the region as compared to you know many of the other jobs you would have in that area, right? A lot of people that are living there are living there for other reasons, not working at the plant. Now, Jennifer, you're a resident of the region where Vermont Yankee is located, and and you've been very much involved in helping the area navigate the plant's closure. Uh, Can you give us a short history of the plant and what brought Entergy to close it early? 
Um, yeah, so I do. I live in um, Vermont Yankee is actually right almost at the place where three states meet, um, where New Hampshire and Massachusetts and Vermont come together. I live about 20 minutes south of Vermont, and I actually, of Vernon, and I live in Franklin County, Massachusetts. Um, so it's really, a, we call it the job shed, and it's really part of sort of a three-state little economy. Um, there are a lot of ways that you could describe what, uh, what led up to the closure of Vermont Yankee. And there's a fabulous book, um, <laughs> I think it's called Public Meltdown, um, by Richard Watts that really um, details the interplay between the politics and the activists um, and, and the utility and the state regulators. Um, and I recommend it to anyone who's trying to think in detail about how this plays out at the state level. Um, but, you know, short, briefly, um, <clears throat> how this looked on the ground was there had actually been a pretty recent license renewal. Like, nobody was necessarily expecting this plant to close. What's, what's interesting from where I sit um, in this region, I work for an economic development agency, is, is that there were a bunch of people who started saying what if before there was a thought that this plant would close. The, the plant had years of life left in it, as you say, um, economic factors, among other things, conspired to have it close early. Um, and it was also political that it was. It, this is a state that has very had a very strong um, renewable energy push and a very strong um, anti-nuclear base, um, <clears throat> including from the the governor's office for years. And so um, there are a lot of reasons why this was a place where an early closure was likely. Um, what happened? Um, the announcement was still a little bit unexpected uh, and um, a little bit. It kind of happened pretty quickly. It started to unfold really quickly. So by the end of 2014, um, the plant was closed. And in 2011, no one really expected that. In 2011, this area was talking about what would happen because they were starting to do some really rigorous regional economic planning. But that what if wasn't based on a sense that that was coming so soon. So it sounds like it caught everybody off guard. They were thinking about this maybe happening a couple decades in the future, and then suddenly it happens. What was the impact on the economy? How much, how much money did Vermont Yankee pump into the local economy, and, and how has it fared since? Um, I, it's, so it's not a, it's, one thing that we really like to emphasize is this is sort of a 10-year event, you know, at the least. So it's not a one-time thing. Um, it's you mean the closure happens- itself? Yeah, they, it kind of slows down. There's a, there's a shift. That as soon as the announcement happens, there's sort of some upheaval. Um, you have employees who start to leave. They get offers early on. There's a lot of demand for those workers. Um, you start to see some upheaval in the workforce um, and community pretty right away. Um, the, the plant works really hard to retain those experienced workers um, and to, to keep folks on site. Uh, and then you start to have actual layoffs. So at, at power down, you see sort of one down phasing. I can't remember the actual numbers. There's sort of these major phases. So it's, so first of all, it's about 600 and something employees. By the time they powered down, it was closer to 500, I think. Um, in the first phase, they'd lay off, you know, some quantity of workers, whatever that was, a quarter of those. Um, and then there are subsequent phases where they take different pieces of the plant sort of, you know, offline. Um, so we are not done. We have just, um, we're just sort of in one of the later phases and we'll be down to sort of skeleton crew um, pretty soon. But that, it really takes a few years for that to happen, which becomes part of why it's difficult in, in addition to, um, you know, the fact that this is sort of a quiet, a, a quiet and powerful player in the economy. Um, it is also kind of a, a slow burn on the closure. So it's a, a little hard to see. And, I push back on that in part because we struggle very much to 
get the message out that like it's not over, it's still happening. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is why I, I'm just sort of picky on that point, because I think every um, community that goes through an event that takes time, whether it's a disaster recovery or whatever, you know, there's sort of a, a rush to declare, um, you know, success. And, um, and, and it's not that simple. So, so it's not like the lights are turned off, no pun intended, all of a sudden this is a drawdown. Mm-hmm. But what impact have you seen, Jennifer, to this point on services, schools, and the funding for them? Sure. So, I mean, the short answer on, you know, what was the impact of it positively in the economy, it was estimated there was a, a UMass Donahue Institute study um, that looked at the three, the whole three-state region. There was an original study that looked just at the Wyndham impact, and then and then a broader study was commissioned in collaboration among the three states and the three counties. And um, then that's at about a half a billion a year in the economy overall. So that's direct, indirect, induced jobs, corporate spending, all that. Um, what you saw very quickly were some very pro- important protective measures. So the town of Vernon, I mean, this is New England, right? So the taxation happens at the local level. There's not county government. So those, a lot of the local taxes accrued at the local level, although many of them were also pulled up at the state level for education funding. That's how Vermont works. Um, Vernon very quickly took action to pare down um, emergency services, for instance, and to, to um, you know, kind of shore up some funds to stabilize the education um, resources so, so there were a lot of things that the town did at that level. What happened um, also was that because this area had been prescient and sort of looking ahead before the announcement and had already put a number on just spitballing at the beginning, like it's going to take at least $10 million for us to get serious about trying to recover from this, the state regulators and the, and the governor walked into the closure. So there's a closure agreement that happens around these things. And they walked into that with a number, thank God. They walked into it with some information because that research had happened down here. Um, and so they, they got $10 million that is in a fund that is really directly controlled by the state, but through it is run through a, a regional committee down here that allocates it towards um, economic recovery projects. So that's one thing that happened. Um, you know, it would. Um, we'd love to have ten times more. That was never going to happen. But I think, um, you know, the reality is we know that we're looking at, um, you know, as you say, we can't replace what we have from the base. We can't replace six hundred jobs at two and a half times, or you know, between one and a half and two and a half times the average regional salary. So what we are looking to do is to grow more jobs from the industries that we have. And so, so you know, there's some very specific. We're doing pretty well on that. We've invested that money in a way that has produced. You know, several hundred jobs. Again, the wage levels aren't exactly at the same place, so we're going to need to do more um, to meet that sort of, you know, half billion a year loss in the economy for the region. Uh, you know, Sakib, I want to ask you about this. You obviously interviewed a lot of people uh, during the work that you did in in the in the region. Uh, and as Jennifer mentioned earlier, there were 600 employed at Vermont Yankee. I think that's well less than half of that at this point, as the, you know, the, as the plant is being uh, decommissioned. Per your experience, what has happened to some of these people? Who stayed? What are they doing? What people have left? What are they looking for? You know, what's been the, the kind of the, the human impact? So uh, specific numbers were hard for me to come by, but <clears throat> I think one thing that's interesting about this unique, uh, this unique economic situation is, at least it seemed to me, Jen might have a different perspective, um, Entergy seemed really engaged in trying to reassign workers, right? They wanted to make it seem as though if you wanted to stay employed, talk to us. We can find a place for you at the plant, somewhere else in the fleet. 
uh, with another company. Like, I do know that because nuclear workers are in demand, uh, there are jobs for uh, especially high-skill workers who have kind of this narrow skill set um, that is relevant at the remaining number of nuclear plants. You just have to be willing to move or you have to be willing to, to make some form of compromise. Um, but there were some interesting stories about people who, uh, you know, took a buyout, left. Um, you know, there were people that moved uh, to New Orleans to work for Energy down there. There were a couple of people that started local businesses. Um, one gentleman and his wife, uh, they started the furniture company that they'd always uh, been thinking about. And um, so now that's what they do. They, they sell, you know, he makes furniture and, and they sell it. Um, there's another person who... Uh, started an online uh, cloth diaper business, so he sells diapers online. Another person does home inspections. Like um, people showed some real entrepreneurial moxie, um, and it didn't seem to me that there was kind of this array of people who had kind of been abandoned or forgotten or left or mm. just in some way had failed. Um, but I don't know that that necessarily uh, assuages the, the broader public policy problem, which is basically what effect. It, it, one, one thing that Jen uh, said um, to me that really s- stuck with me was a lot of communities think it's about the workers at the plant. And it's true. Um, the workers at the plant are important. Um, but one thing communities don't think about is what's going to happen to them. Because the workers, they may have their choice as to where they're going to go and what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. But the community itself, by definition, is rooted there. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do you want to be in the hands of what those workers are going to do, or do you want to have some kind of proactive alternative to, to save yourself? Um, so I think it's it, it, the, the worker aspect is important, but I think one thing that um, the public policy dialogue hasn't gotten to yet is it's separate from the issue of the communities themselves and how they survive and how they thrive. Jen, in, in your experience of being from the region, have you seen any of uh, these kind of similar, um, you know, what, what people have done? Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things um, that, you know, I'm, I'm a swim mom, right? So I, you know, I know a lot of folks through that. And we're, this is a rural area. This is a, a, we are better off in a lot of parts of rural America, but we're definitely deeply rural and have a lot of the same, um, you know, scarcity of economic opportunity and, you know, families um, living in, you know, multi-generational poverty um, and opioids and all the, all the regular stuff that America is facing. And, um, social capital matters a lot. So um, households where there's a spouse who can volunteer all the time and help run all those swim meets or coach um, is invaluable when you have a swim team that has a total budget of, you know, a few thousand dollars a year to work with 50 kids at a borrowed pool. Part of the, you know, so that's, that's the kind of place that we live in. And so when you lose a family that has that kind of um, capacity to give to the community, it is massive. And that's what I have seen. And it's it's very hard to measure, and a lot of those families are very private. I couldn't. Um, I, I asked a lot of them personally to talk with folks in the press, and um, and because many of them had had very negative experiences um, in the region because of a lot of hostility between um, the plant and and uh, anti-nuclear activism, um, they just kept really really wanted to stay private. And so it's unfortunate that a lot of the stories didn't get told because those were really key members in the community. These are people who volunteer in fire departments, and they are people who, you know, ha- have the, um, you know, capacity, capacity and bandwidth, you know, education level, um, just be incredible pillars of the community, you know, in addition to their spending. I mean, that's, you know, I also, there's a, a high-end consumer goods 
store here in Brattleboro, and they also have a store in another part of the region, and they have seen their sales fall off precipitously because the kind of people who would go in and buy a new thingy, you know, at Christmas, mm-hmm. um, they're scarce around here. You know, they, they're seasonal people like that. The people who live here year-round who go in and buy high-end consumer products are, are, are few and far between. And um, we risk losing some stores that, you know, I might rely on every four or five years, and, you know, but we like to have them, but there were families that could purchase those things regularly. Um, that's the sort of slow bleed um, that we look at. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's important. I mean, these are, this is we, what we refer to lovingly in rural America at this point is, you know, the, the, it's sort of the death by a thousand cuts. It's like, that's not the one thing, but it's the next thing <laughs> that came after us. I also want to just piggyback on something that Keith, you know, talked about, which is really looking at these two things together. It's the people who leave, which is what I was just talking about, but then also the loss of this economic actor and, and what it does, um, not just at the town level, but like for individual families. I can think of multiple examples where there's a family farm, um, a, a family that, you know, does maple sugaring and keeps cows or, you know, farms, grows things. And they, over generations, are still here in part because members of the family have earned wages in industry and utilities and, and also in healthcare and government jobs. So these off-the-farm jobs are part of why we have enjoyed in Vermont this ability to preserve some of these multi-generational family working farms. And, and I, I look at a couple of these in the region, and I think, well, I don't know how the next generation without that additional income. You know, they had somebody who worked at Vermont Yankees, and, or, or years ago, Yankee Row, which is over another part of the region, which is really not that far from here. Um, and I don't know. I mean, what's the next job that's going to keep that farm in the family? You know, it's the the joke about farming, like when the you know the farmer hits the lottery and people ask him what he's going to do, and he says, "I'll farm till the money runs out." Like, it's not really funny because mostly people have to have additional income on their farms to keep them going. But it's it's a labor of love. It's a part of the culture and heritage of this place, um, and those those other economic um, actors have been a big part of smoothing out the rough edges on being a farmer. Well, looking specifically for a moment at, at the challenge of of redeveloping, it sounds like this closure can have a transformational effect. Uh, on the communities, for good or for bad, or um, obviously it's a, it's a major impact. One of the things that's unique about any uh, any closing or closed nuclear power plant is that the fuel actually stays on site. That's highly radioactive fuel. It stays on site. There's nowhere else to put it in the United States. There was a movement several years ago that is uh, stalled to create a permanent nuclear waste storage facility in Yucca Mountain. Uh, Nevada. That was um, that that effort stalled due to um, due to opposition. But in any event, the result is that these plants are going to have this nuclear waste on site forever. Saqib, how does this fact of nuclear waste storage impact the ability for the communities to redevelop and create new opportunities? Well, you, you mentioned the, the permanent storage site failing due to opposition. The opposition was. People don't want nuclear waste. They don't want to be around nuclear waste. They don't want to be around the risk. They don't want to be around the, the potential uh, toxic exposure. Um, it's not like we don't have people who understand nuclear science. It's not like we don't know how to store this stuff with at least some um, semblance of safety. But I think it is different if it's just in your backyard, right? Um, in Vernon, Vermont, uh, this is a small town. 
um, they live with just giant barrels of well-sealed nuclear waste that's just sitting around. They have a bunch of security, uh, kind of who have to keep watch on it. There's a riverfront there. They have to make sure the, that, the, that the waste is kept safe from um, all manner of bad actors. Um, yeah, there's guys with machine guns guarding this stuff. Is that right? There's guys with machine guns sitting around in a community with a bunch of spent fuel that is not really doing anything but posing a risk for them. Right from their point of view, they're getting kind of a raw deal, especially because the deal that they felt they signed up for decades ago, I guess the community signed up for by implication, was that the waste wasn't going to be there permanently, and now it is. So as a redevelopment question, there's, I think, the social stigma of this waste being around and people feeling uncomfortable with it, um, kind of regardless of what the nuclear scientists say. But um, there are also concrete redevelopment challenges. Um, you know, I talked to some folks in, in Vernon who are, who are trying to think about what Vernon can become going forward and what it, what it can do to uh, come up with a new uh, economic heart. And um, they, for them, kind of the, the near-term and long-term future of the site is really, really important, basically. Like, I don't know that you can be building condos on a site right, you know, next to a bunch of uh, you know, barrels of nuclear waste. It just seems like that's going to affect property value, so to speak. Um, but at the same time, uh, the site itself is an industrial site. We know how to remediate those. For example, one thing it, uh, that's interesting at, uh, at uh, Yankee, if I remember correctly, they have a septic system that uh, is unique to the site, right? So that's something that, you know, you don't maybe want to think about that much, but it is something that offers physical infrastructure that could be used by something else, something like a downtown, right? Um, so I think the nuclear waste is kind of a weird development challenge for uh, towns who are always thinking about, you know, how do we get investment here? How do we get people to want to be here? Um, any town in America is thinking about that, but... I think very, very few of them have to do with uh, barrels of waste that are 30 feet tall and, and, and full of really, really dangerous substances. You know, um, uh, one of my colleagues, Christina Simeone, here at the Climate Center uh, in 2016 uh, wrote a report on nuclear de- decommissioning. And that report showed that nuclear plant owners and operators are recouping the costs to store the site, or excuse me, store the fuel on site, uh, and that money comes from federal taxpayers. Meanwhile, uh, in the interim, the communities are not being paid to hosted stranded waste. They're not being compensated for the risk that they're taking on. Now, recently, lawmakers in Congress have proposed a bill. I love the acronym for this one. It's called the Stranded Act of 2018, and that would compensate communities for temporary waste storage, including tax credits and direct compensation. Jen, I'd like to ask you, would something like this make a meaningful difference uh, to the communities around uh, Vermont Yankee? Yeah, I kind of love this. This has been um, a, a, a bee in my bonnet for a while, this whole what you referred to there where there's a pathway for um, the utilities to be compensated by the Department of Energy for the cost of what we lovingly call recoverables. And so it's sort of, you know, they have a pathway to be made whole, and communities don't have that. Um, and and one of the most interesting things, last year the Department of Energy ran a very good national program to go around the country and have a conversation about if the fuel moves somewhere, probably not Yucca Mountain, but if it can go to some interim centralized repositories, 
how would those communities give consent and what would that process look like? And, and that was a great conversation, and we participated in that as, um, as the institute to kind of say, let's make sure we include the existing communities in that consent conversation, you know, and, and in compensation. If you're going to move a bunch of stuff to a community in Texas and pay them to have it, that pretty much illustrates that you should have been paying Vernon to have it all along. So I love this. I mean, this really starts to put on the map the, the rights and concerns of the communities, for which currently there really aren't any levers. I mean, there are communities that, um, you know, I can't tell you who feels how about what. I mean, I go to public meetings, and I can tell you that the folks who show up tend to be on the extremes. It's like the dumbbell effect. And everybody in the middle is either like, whoa, the fuel's going to stay, or it's still here, who knew? Or, you know, has it, it, mixed emotions about it, but maybe not strongly one way or the other. The, the reality is it's just, it, it's, you know, what you would almost call a taking in kind of, you know, land use stuff, because it basically renders that site unusable. And as Sakib mentioned, there's, in the case of Vernon and all these sites, there are some um, potentially valuable assets. I mean, these are rural, some of these rural communities have no infrastructure to speak of. There's no water and sewer, um, and there isn't transmission infrastructure that they might be able to tap another kind of plant into, natural gas or biomass or whatever. So these are really important assets to leverage. And the lack of conversation, um, back to sort of the very beginning of the, the question, which is, you know, that basically these sites have not been talked about as places to repurpose. The conversation has completely been about how clean and how safe, and that's a really important conversation to have, but it's been at the exclusion of what next. And, and when you start to have the conversation about what next, it actually starts to put things in perspective, you know, and kind of give you a sense of what, what you're giving up, like, wow, if something amazing could happen there next, why am I letting you use this land for decades to store the fuel, fuel for free now? Or if nothing can ever happen there, then maybe we didn't get enough money out of it. I mean, having some actual boundaries and a, a scenario-based discussion starts to be much more interesting than, again, that dumbbell conversation of, you know, the industry would like to spend as little money as possible, as uh, that's its job, to manage these sites and cleanups and all these things. And the, the folks who are concerned about health and safety and the environment um, are saying it doesn't matter what the cost, it needs to be restored to the exact state that was in at the beginning. The reality probably lies somewhere in the middle, and that's been the case in places where there's more of a kind of a social planning and top-down economic and um, planning. Um, America has an amazing track record on safety and environmental stuff for nuclear. It's not, it is not perfect by any means, um, and it should not be sacrificed. Um, but I would actually argue that opening these processes up to um, sort of more vigorous discussion about what next and how to do it would increase oversight and engagement and, and actually probably lead to some even better outcomes. It sounds also, and this is referring back to what you just said, and also the earlier mention you said a few minutes ago about the $10 million that, that you know, kind of was set aside for the community. Uh, you know, along those lines, um, recently Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Peter Welch were involved in the reintroduction of legislation. Uh, it's called the Nuclear Plant Decommissioning Act that would give the states and I guess the communities more say in the overall decommissioning process. Um, uh, you know, how, what practical effect might that have in relation to Vermont Yankee and, and the community's ability to, you know, take some more control of what happens to it? Yeah, I would need like five legal experts to be able to answer that question. And they would have to have access to a lot of secret material right now, because I think that this, first of all, 
Vermont did something super smart years ago, which is to um, create a process for a certificate of public goods. So Vermont has already had more control over this process than most states have. Most states have very, very, very little control over um, what can and can't go forward um, with their nuclear power plant. It's very much something between sort of the, the NRC um, and the and the utility. But um, I, I I haven't read the act carefully. I've had um, we've had the opportunity here to be in conversation um, most recently with Representative Welch's folks, and so we know that they pay close attention to what has happened here economically, to what has gone well, to where people may have wished it had gone a different way. <clears throat> this also relates a little bit, probably, and again, I am I, not positive um, what's contained within this, but for folks to understand right now what's happening is a major shift in the nuclear industry where some, or some are getting out of it. Certainly in New England, um, you know, Entergy and, and, and um, at least... Um, Maybe just Entergy. I won't speak for all of them, but Entergy certainly is getting out of nuclear in New England, and um, you know who knows how fast. And um, and there's a shift towards potentially a different process, and that process would um, mean that a different owner, so a site license, would be transferred to a different company or set of companies in order to implement the cleanup and closure. The this is a huge. This is a whole other podcast, but the point is. What we're having going on right now in Vermont is um, a pending sale, a sale that is being considered at the state level um, of, of Vermont Yankee from Entergy, VY, whatever, to North Star. And North Star would literally take ownership of the plant and then implement a very different um, kind of cleanup scheme. So, wait, so North Star is a separate company that would be in, that would that would manage the the decommissioning process. Is that correct? They would, yes, they would own the plan and manage. The, and and what they're proposing is a performance based cleanup, and it would involve multiple other entities. It, again, this this may this the promise of this is that it may speed up the cleanup and and lead to a site that is available sooner rather than later. Um, that's that's kind of all I'll say on the subject because it's we don't know what the deal looks like. A lot of it's um, in confidential because of the financials. Um, but I think that this act, A, would provide to a lot of other um, states some of the tools that Vermont has some of and has was, was smart enough to put into place and, and also is based on some very important lessons that have been learned throughout this process. Um, and, again, then going forward, we give Vermont some tools um, to continue to have some say over, um, you know, some of the really important long-term questions. I mean, you know, a lot of what we don't know about what's going to work on the site or not work on the site has to do with, you know, everything from, you know, you have to monitor the groundwater for decades because stuff moves really slowly, and you got to make sure that there's some way to understand, you know, not just the, the, the top layer of the soil on the site and how that's, you know, but also every single other activity and to have control over what leaves the site and what stays on the site as far as, you know, material and, um, and you know, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of landfill stuff that, you know, it's amazing how many hours you can spend in, a, in these monthly kind of nuclear decommissioning panel meetings. You can spend on things like rubbleization, but it turns out they matter, especially if you don't have any say in those things. So. Uh, Sakib, I wanted to ask you this question. You, you said earlier that you um, have you know, done a lot of research and in looking into Indian Point uh, nuclear power plant, which is scheduled to close in the next few years. I believe it's scheduled officially. Um, and it is north of New York City. It's in Westchester County, which is the county immediately north of, of the city. Um, so 
you know, I don't know how big that town that, that uh, Indian Point is located in, but obviously there's a major metropolitan area uh, immediately surrounding it. Do you see the same level of community impacts, financial impacts, or, or, or see that these would happen in a place like India, Indian Point versus a place like um, Vernon and Vermont Yankee, which are so rural? I don't, but uh, but there are people a lot smarter than me that I think could answer the question with, uh, with more authority. I, I mean, so one thing to think about when you're, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a rural plant is basically what else um, can can contribute economic activity when that thing uh, begins its wind-down process, right? And uh, I was advised to, to, to think about how rural a given plant is when trying to model and, and understand uh, what the long-term impact would be. Now, um, you mentioned how close Westchester County is to New York City. New York City, of course, right now is in uh, a very aggressive growth period. And that is filtering into kind of the wider metro region. Um, so what that would imply, at, at least to kind of a first derivative economic thinking, is um, there's going to be an impact when Indian Point shuts down. It's going to be felt in that community. The question is by whom? And then the next question is what is kind of the reaction to that? What seeps into that economic space? The New York City metro area is a large, diversified, well-financed and very much in-demand community, right? People live in Westchester County. They commute to the city routinely. So if a plant shuts down up there, as it will, um, there will be housing that goes on the market. Will there be demand for that housing? You tell me. I mean, it's pretty close to New York City. You take the train. You're in the city in, I would imagine, probably about an hour. Uh, Pretty good place for a dentist or a hedge fund manager, if you like. But still a good place for a mechanic? You tell me. Still a good place for a... Uh, for janitor, and there are lots and lots of kind of distributional questions that arise with uh, when you're thinking about these closures and and basically on whom the impact will land. A couple more questions here for for you too, um, Jennifer. Obviously, you've been involved with the whole issue with Vermont Yankee since the get go. Um, what would you say to other towns that are facing potential plant closures? What are some lessons learned, if there's anything that you might want to impart from your experience again with Vermont Yankee? Yeah, um, so I always lead now with the sort of um, tagline, which is, you know, help is not on the way. Um, I think that is n- not a forever statement. I think that, uh, for instance, the, the, the Leahy Welch legislation is, a, is a, a great example that there are great people who are paying attention to this and trying to change the game um, on a national level. But right now, um, communities have to understand that they need to get a grip on what the hit is going to be in their community. And I think I, I 100% agree with what Sukeep said about um, Indian Point. You know, it's a very different context. I, and I love that touching on sort of the income inequality. I mean, what you know, you're going to see up there, it's just a furtherance of sort of a shift um, in non-metro areas to this, you know, more service sector jobs and more bedroom communities and fewer great jobs sort of within the communities, fewer industry jobs, fewer utility jobs. So um, that is a, a, a dynamic and a shift that we're seeing nationally, and it's something that I worry about. Is it going to be bad for, you know, Cortland and Indian Point area? I think they're going to be fine. I think it's, you know, they're very proactive and they're thinking about their school budgets and things like that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about a, a number of just, you know, long-term 
you know, trajectories with nuclear power plants. And, you know, and, and one of them um, has not, <laughs> I mean, what I would say to communities is have a vision, right? Have a vision for what you want next because it is going to happen no matter what. And I find myself, I have talked to once or twice or three times people from, you know, 10, 20 communities, um, but the second they get a reprieve or find out that their plant is not going to close as soon as they thought, they're done, they're like, oh, we're good. Um, they all close. They're built to close. They, they have a piece of them that is the main thing, <laughs> you know, that, that, that falls apart. And there's no, you know, there's really no getting around that. And that's fine. That's the end of their design life. Um, the plants themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's just how they were built. And they're, they're not modularized so we can, you know, replace out the main, you know, sort of components. So, so the reality is that, um, and then the other thing that happens is if it, if it goes into overdrive, into closure, um, communities find themselves overwhelmed by the details. And, um, and so I would say, you know, back to help is not on the way, get organized, meaning figure out who the players are going to be that are going to sort of frame the future, um, identify your risks early on, get a plan, like get, get, a, get an analysis and then consider getting a plan together. Part of why this region has had so much success in terms of recovery is that way before I was ever around, long before, there was a group of people who did an early VY impact study. And, and then they started to translate that into some action, and they did a, a comprehensive economic development strategy, which is something little rural counties are not normally allowed to do, but they got sort of a special dispensation, basically, and have a federally approved economic strategy for the region into which some of the – and that, that accounts for the closure of ZY. So all of these planning steps. Um, have been the basis upon which we've been able to go after funds and to and that the folks here have been able to get attention and resources, you know, additionally from state and federal, and and to build a, um, support, to build sort of political support for taking this seriously and not just sticking our heads in the sand. So, I, you know, get organized. Help is not on the way. You have to do it yourselves. And um, and there is a future after this. It's kind of up to you, <laughs> you know, what that looks like. Um, and you may not have to do a lot. You may just be fidgeting with budgets and then everything's going to look okay. Or you may say, you know what, we're, we're happy getting m- more sleepy and rural and that's great. And then you should just, you know, make decisions based on that. The long arc of this um, is really hard to know because we're really just ramping up closures, right? So everyone always says, well, tell me what the other places have looked like. And, you know, I can look over to Roe in Massachusetts and it doesn't, it's not a very helpful story because Roe had a new tax thing come online that replaced it. So Roe is fine. The towns around it are not fine. And so the regional impacts, which are very hard to see, it's the loss of another local elementary school. It's the loss of the last general practitioner doctor in that part of the county. It is, I see these things because I live here, but their very implant is not going to show them to me. So it's very hard. Um, and it's a long tail. And I see there's one town that maybe even may even disincorporate up there. Um, and it's not because of the plant closure, but that certainly was one of the many major, you know, thousand cuts. Um, so I, I think communities need to, you know, sort of look realistically around and see what community like them has been through this or something like this and take an honest look at that. But then just start planning, you know, based on what are, what are the, the hits you're going to take, what are the job losses, the tax losses, all that. Get a decent study done. It doesn't have to be a million dollars. And then just start doing some stuff and get organized and build some political will around it because here's the upside. When you get focused on talking about the future and what's next, 
you can get out of the trenches of fighting about whether or not the thing should close or you like it or love it. Like, it doesn't matter. Once it's closed, you know, I, I don't need to agree with you on energy or nuclear or anything. I can just agree that we want our community to be thriving. And that gives us something that's a lot more positive and, fo- and future-oriented. And, and every community needs that when this happens. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult time. It's a stressful time. And, and looking forward is really helpful. Andy, can I make an observation here? Sure. Listen to the way Jen talks about this, right? This is a very engaged, proactive, energetic person, right? I don't know if everybody's like that. And I think that is kind of part of why I'm so fascinated by this whole issue. It's a perfectly American response to a factory closure in a one-factory town to say, party's over. We're just going to move on with our lives. We're going to mourn this. We're going to kind of, and people are going to filter where they will. People are going to do what they will. There's no kind of unified answer to where the workers go or what they do or what happens to the town next. It just kind of happens slowly over time and in kind of intangible ways. There are change, and one day the college scholarship you've offered for decades, you just can't afford it anymore. The school you had that was once supported by the nuclear plant closes down. Like, it's just... In, in, it, it's almost like it, it's incremental, right? It could happen that way. And like I said, it would be a perfectly American response to just let that take its course and not handle it in any centralized way. Um, I, I, I know that's a provocative way to look at it, but I think it's, it's kind of, in a way, it's true to who we are. And I think it's part of, um, part of why we're in this situation to begin with, right? Because we were to have a centralized solution to this waste. And we didn't do it. And now we're working on these kind of second-level decentralized solutions, and we're struggling with it. And the reason we're struggling with it is because maybe that's how we do things. Um, So I think really part of what makes Jen's and and Vermont's story so remarkable is they're trying to question that. And I think they're trying to say, we're an interest group. This This is an issue of public policy significance. We should address it at a national level. We should have U.S. senators and committees in Congress and uh, federal departments looking at this and saying, you know, maybe we should at least ask if we should mobilize a response to this. Um, I think in that way, it's, it's, uh, it does take a lot of energy, and you do need to kind of mobilize something that, uh, that hasn't previously existed. Well, Jennifer Saqib, thanks for your insights here. And, and you know, one last little issue I want to bring up just on what you just said right now, Saqib, is that there are 99 operating nuclear plants in the United States at this point, all of them at some point will retire, whether prematurely or at the end of their engineered service life, that will happen. And I think the points that you both are bringing up here are extremely important, that there needs to be a, a, a broader uh, discussion, a broader policy, I, I guess, uh, initiative or push to start to come up with some, 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 solution, some solutions that are going to impact many communities across the country. So, Jennifer and Saqib, thank you very much for talking. Thank you. This is terrific. Thank you, Andy. Today's guests have been Jennifer Stromston, Program Director with the Institute of Nuclear Host Communities, and Saqib Rahim, a reporter with e News who has written at length about the legacy of nuclear plant closures. For more insights into energy policy and for updates on research and events from the Climate Center for Energy Policy, subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy, or visit our website at climateenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 